Hi there, I'm Jay Goldstein, Head of Program at Petrie. I'm your host and I'm happy to welcome you to our podcast. For those of you who don't know us, Petrie develops companies attacking the world's largest problems at the frontier of biology and engineering. This podcast is about spotlighting inspiring founders who are innovating, improving human health and sustainability. Today's episode is focused on synthetic biology. We'll talk to Reshma Shetty, co-founder of Ginkgo Bioworks, the organism company that programs cells to make everything from food to materials to therapeutics. In this episode, we're gonna learn about Reshma's start as a founder. We'll take a deep dive into the science. We'll explore its impact on the field. And finally, we'll get three concrete tips from Reshma to help founders, perhaps like you, building at the intersection of biology and engineering. Reshma, it is great to have you here today. Let's start first with your roots as a founder, how you came to found Ginkgo Bioworks. As a kid, I think I was a pretty normal kid. Um, My dad was a professor at the university, so I think um, he probably did inspire a a love of science and engineering and and math. But I would say, um, you know, where I really um, came to fall in love with biology was as a high school student. So I did a high school summer research program at the University of Utah, which was my local university. And I ended up joining a lab that studies cone snails. There are these snails that basically are venomous and they live um, in coral reefs and whatnot. And it turns out their venom is super interesting. It's like this cocktail of neurotoxins that can introduce all these crazy um, behaviors. Some of them are paralytic. Some of them, um, you know, basically put the put a fish to sleep, et cetera. And it was just this fascinating biochemistry, physiology, molecular biology lab. And that was really what caused me to fall in love with biology and convinced me that I should not do what my dad wanted me to do, which is to go to medical school and instead um, do bioengineering. Did you have any role models of people who started companies looking backwards? Like, I feel like a lot of times when I talk to founders are like, you know, I had an uncle who started a business or, you know, did you have any people like that who showed you that this path was possible? So my dad actually did start a company out of his lab at the university. So I I suppose that was sort of a a model for me that like, oh, you could be an entrepreneur. Um, But candidly, even though that example was like around my life all the time, like that wasn't something I thought about per se for myself. You know, even uh, when I went through college and and most of grad school, you know, we'd sort of toyed with the idea of starting a company, but it wasn't really where I thought I would go. Um, And it wasn't some like big passion of mine to be a founder. Really for me, it was about in you know, graduate school, I discovered you know, this new emerging area of synthetic biology and that's what I fell in love with. And so starting a company was almost an afterthought. It was like, okay, I really love synthetic biology. I wanna to continue to advance the field. What's the best way to do that? And in the end, I decided um, along with my co-founders that starting a company was the best way to achieve our mission to make biology easier to engineer. So for me, starting a company was really a, like a means to an end, not an end in itself. <laughs> and let's talk now about how you transitioned from MIT, your PhD program in biological engineering, to actually uh, launching Ginkgo. Yeah, so I had an amazing time during my PhD, right? Um, it was this new emerging field called synthetic biology. We were just at the beginning of it. We knew this could be something big. We were figuring out, you know, what it meant, what the boundaries of the field were. And there was just this amazing frontier of all this work to be done and not enough people to do it, which is a really exciting place to be as a researcher. And so as I started coming up on the end of my PhD, you know, it was, it was sort of almost overwhelming how many things we felt needed to be done to advance the field, right? And 
when I talked to the folks who, you know, my fellow grad students who later became my co-founders, you know, sort of like, okay, we could all split up and go do postdocs and become professors and start labs. And that's one way to make an impact on the field. But there was also this other option of sort of sticking together and, and going and starting a company. And we actually felt like, we could make a bigger impact on the field faster by starting a company than we could by pursuing academic careers. That in the end was really what cinched it for me is that I felt like that was a better vector to achieve my goals. And part of the reason I felt that was, you know, even being at MIT, which is this amazing place full of resources, full of super, super smart people, working on synthetic biology was still kind of challenging because you know, synthetic biology was all about making the process of engineering biology faster, cheaper, easier. And, you know, in an academic setting, you know, obviously what tends to be very highly valued and very highly prized is doing something new, right? And you want to do something new so that you can publish it because papers are sort of the currency of the academic uh, world. And, and so sometimes I'd find that if I was trying to explain why I thought it was important to make something faster, go faster or be easier for people to do, people would be like, why? What does it matter if more people can do this, <laughs> right? And, um, and it was really hard to justify the work we were doing in certain cases, again, even in, in a place as privileged as MIT. Whereas if you start a company and you wanna make something faster, cheaper, easier, that's just like totally natural. Like, of course you wanna do that. Um, and so again, uh, starting a company just felt like the right way to achieve our goals. And that was really what motivated us. And it was interesting because, you know, the last few years at MIT, we had toyed with the idea of starting a company. We had entered the MIT 100K competition, which is a big startup competition that a lot of people participate in at MIT. We never, never made it past the first round, you know. Um, and, and so it wasn't like we got much traction um, as students. But... And so the sort of pivotal moment for us as a founding team was when we talked to a, a guy named Saul Griffith, who was a few years ahead of us in the MIT Media Lab. And Saul and his buddies, again, buddies from grad school, all got together and basically sort of started not one, but actually a whole set of companies um, coming out of grad school. And Saul's experience was like very informative and inspirational to us, right? Because they had a bunch of ideas they had worked on in grad school. They wanted to go start companies around them and they weren't quite sure which ones was going to take off or whatnot. And, and essentially they, they sort of self-funded themselves by just going and getting consulting gigs on the side um, and to, to sort of bootstrap themselves for the first few years. And so it was like this light bulb went off for us when we realized that there was more than one way to start a company, right? So there's obviously the way that most people in biotechnology were starting companies is you you know go raise money like five ten million dollars from a venture firm and and you know start a company. But you know every venture firm we talked to sort of laughed us out of the room. We had no business experience. We had never started a company before. We were sort of on paper just it looked like we were a bunch of naive kids, right? Um, just playing at starting companies. Um, but Saul's experience was really informative and, and opened our eyes to the fact that there was another path that we could take in starting a company. Were you guys working multiple gigs at the time or did you just keep the costs really low? We did both. So we both worked consulting gigs on the side because none of us were sort of independently wealthy. We all needed to pay rent, et cetera. 
Um, but we also were all very used to um, living cheaply, right? We were grad students. I, I think we lived on, you know, roughly 30 grand a year. And so you don't need to break, bring in that much when you can live on 30 grand a year. Yep. Did you go back to those venture capitalists who told you no? And like, you know, that moment in Good Will Hunting where they're like, how do you like them apples? Like, did you, did you give them that? I don't know that I've ever like, gone back. I bet that would feel really good, you know? <laughs> It's a good idea. I, I should go uh, go look up those names. There, <laughs> I think they were probably right to laugh us out of the room at the time. <laughs> I would like to invite Tony Colessa into the conversation. He's a partner here with us at Petrie, and he oversees our health portfolio. I'd love to have Tony talk a little bit more about the science of ginkgo with us. Yeah, thanks, Jay. And, and Reshma, I've, I've heard you say in, in other conversations that when starting a company, the place to start is with the mission. So, I mean, you alluded to it a little bit before, but can you articulate what's the mission of, of Ginkgo and how it's manifested today? Yeah, Ginkgo's mission is to make biology easier to engineer. And yeah, whenever somebody asks me about, you know, what's the first thing you should do when you start a company, you know, a lot of people talk about like, write a business plan, raise money, you know, this, that, or other thing. And to me, there's a step before any of those things, which is, you know, find a problem that you're passionate about, right? Because, you know, startups might succeed or fail, you know, maybe you'll get lucky, maybe you won't. You want to sort of look back on the experience and not have any regrets. And I think the best way to do that is to have a problem that you're so passionate about that you're, you're okay working on it and investing your life energy in it, succeed or fail, right? Um, and so, to me, figuring out that mission statement is, is super important to make sure you're investing your energy in a worthwhile place, right? Um, so yeah, for us, you know, we sat down in a room in the Stata Center building 32 at MIT and just brainstormed what our mission should be for a couple hours. And we had all these different ideas of what it could be. And, and in the end, we landed on uh, Ginkgo's mission is to make biology easier to engineer. And, and, you know, fast forward like 13 years later, that continues to be our mission to this day. Yeah. And so what, when you were starting and, and even near term today, uh, what were some of the technologies that you needed to build or partner in order to realize that vision? Yeah, at its core, you know, synthetic biology is really about the design, build, test, learn cycle, right? So you need to, you know, design an organism, build it, test it, um, analyze its performance, and then learn from that and iterate again around that design, build, test, learn cycle. And so when we started, candidly, the tools sucked for all of those steps, <laughs> right? Um, I think the big bottleneck that we um, identified when we first started Ginkgo was really in the build step, um, like our tools for building DNA um, uh, were pretty limited um, and so we had lots of ideas of what to design, but our ability to actually realize those ideas in like physical DNA and like physical organisms um, was limited. And so that's where we started. And as we made progress along that goal, we sort of quickly realized that our next bottleneck was gonna be around the analytics, right? Actually being able to know how well your strains are performing. And in particular, it was not just about knowing how your strains are performing, but can you do that in a high throughput way, right? So if you're gonna actually be, like we, we could design, you know, thousands of constructs and or thousands of strains. And then as our tools for building DNA got better, we could then build thousands of constructs or thousands of strains. And so then you needed to be able to analyze the performance of thousands of constructs or thousands of strains, right? Um, and so pretty quickly, we sort of added on like investments on the analytics side. Um, and 
And then only it was after we had sort of built out more and more build capabilities and more and more sort of test capabilities or analytics capabilities, then it was when we actually had the data that could inform some of the design capabilities and sort of let us invest there. So now, of course, we invest across all of those areas, but that was sort of the evolution we went through is first build, then adding on analytics in addition to build, and then adding, adding on investments on the design and modeling side. So, I mean, as far as how these technologies have been applied, in the past few years, Ginkgo's launched three new ventures join Motif and Alonia. I think it would be great. I, Alonia is, is such a compelling concept to, you know, to use the tools that we have to clean up environmental pollution of, of the past. Uh, can you talk a bit about like what does Alonia do and what was some of the technology that Ginkgo developed in order to enable that mission? Yeah, you know, it's interesting what, what even in the early days of Ginkgo, we sort of had all these dreams about applications we could ultimately go after with synthetic biology. And I think what one thing that's actually been almost surprising to me is how fast new application areas have opened up uh, as the tools have gotten better, right? So as we made platform investments, new frontiers opened up. And yeah, Alonia represents, yeah, our, our um, entree into the environmental remediation space. And it was sort of always this fascinating space to me. Like we had, we have all these challenges of like these polluted sites or these, you know, toxic sites or just wastewater contamination in general, like water contamination in general. And the question is, these are these are pretty challenging problems from an engineering point of view, right? Just because to process a, a contaminant in, in the environment that's present in a low level across a very broad area, that's just like hard from an engineering point of view, but it sort of lends itself to the parallel processing capability of biology, right? And there's even if you sort of look at like people have gone and studied microbes that are present at contaminated sites and you see essentially like new, like essentially it becomes a very selective environment for new microbes that have basically, you know, enzymatic capabilities that can start to degrade the, the local pollutants and stuff like that. And so it's pretty obvious that to us that, you know, biology was capable of this and we just never had harnessed it. Now it's obviously gets into interesting areas about like, okay, as a society, we tend to be pretty okay with doing whatever to our bodies if it means saving our lives, right? But when you start to think about using biology in the environment, that obviously is a whole um, another um, uh, ball game for folks. But to me, you know, not accessing biology as a tool for environmental remediation has almost is just as dire or worse consequences than 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 using biology um, for this purpose. And so, yeah, really excited to be able to explore um, the space and, and make a difference there with Alonia. So, I guess one last question. So, in terms of another application of some of the platform and tools that Ginkgo's built, uh, you know, Ginkgo is in a prime position to be one of the first movers um, in COVID testing. And I'm curious what inspired that and what were some of the challenges that had to be solved in order to enable population scale testing? Yeah, so, so COVID, you know, really came to Boston in March of 2020. And um, it was just this sort of defining moment, I think, um, for a lot of us, because it sort of took biosecurity and biosafety and made it like front and center, right? It was something we had always talked about but on some level, I think we maybe believed it was sort of a theoretical in the future concern. And all of a sudden it meant like, oh my gosh, we have this like disease outbreak that is affecting the entire world. And ultimately like in some ways ground the world to a halt, right? And, and so for us, it was like, 
like it was almost embarrassing to admit, but like, even though we had been like spending the last decade, you know, talking about the power of biology, it was like, wow, biology is really powerful. Oh gosh. And, and we as practitioners of synthetic biology have an obligation to think about and, and not just think about, but actively work on, you know, biosafety and biosecurity. And in some ways the pandemic essentially provided a, a forum for us to accelerate those investments. Like handily there are investments that we, sh we need to make regardless, but the pandemic was definitely a forcing function um, to look at it um, in a much more uh, deep and accelerated way. And so when we looked at the pandemic and sort of what was needed to respond to it, it sort of became clear that there was gonna be, we would need to try a lot of different things, right? We needed to think about how do we test people, right? Um, to, to know if they're infected uh, with a virus and to stop the spread. We need to think about therapeutics. We need to think about vaccines and how we're gonna boot up production of them in a really short period of time. And so we actually had projects in all of those areas. And on the testing side, you know, what became pretty clear to us was that there was really two kinds of testing that was needed. And people tend to lump it all under testing, but actually they're pretty distinct. One was diagnostic testing, right? And that's what usually people mean by testing. It's like, hey, I'm sick, I have a fever, I have a cough, like, do I have COVID enough? I need to go to my doctor and get tested so that I know if, if I have COVID um, and, and can be treated accordingly. But there's also this other kind of testing, which is more of using testing as a screening tool. Like how do we use testing to prevent the spread of COVID in our communities, right? And it's interesting because how you think about doing screening-based testing or, or, or testing to prevent the spread of COVID is very different from how you think about diagnostic testing. And most of the testing infrastructure in this country is really set up and centered around diagnostic testing, right? It assumes that a healthcare professional is taking the sample. It assumes that that sample is shipped cold to the lab and that the lab is sort of testing it um, in their facilities and then returns the result back in a few days. But if you're thinking about screening-based testing, it's different. Like, I'm not sick, I don't have to take this test. So if it's really hard or painful or cumbersome for me to take this test, then I don't wanna do it, right? Um, or if it takes you know, a week for me to hear back about whether or not um, it's positive or not, then it's not really that effective for starting the spread, stopping the spread, right? Um, and so I think that's like over, as we like looked at testing more and more, we realized there was this unmet need around screening and where that's actually played out and where we think there's a real um, um, opportunity for, for Ginkgo to contribute is specifically around testing in schools, right? And so for, you know, I have kids in school, I'm sure um, other folks who might be listening do as well. And a lot of our kids haven't been in school for a while now, right? I'm lucky my daughter has been in school, but then I worry about her being in school, right? And so the question we asked is like, is there a, a way that we could actually be testing every student every week in order to provide um, basically a means of reassurance to teachers, to administrators, to parents, to communities that there is an active spread happening in the school. And so um, we've been really interested in what we call classroom pool testing, where basically every kid in, the in, a, in a given classroom basically swabs themselves, right? So there's no nurse involved. They swab themselves, even down to kindergartners, and they basically drop that swab into um, a 50 mil conical tube. And, um, and you test the whole classroom at once, right? So instead of taking one sample per person or per patient, like you would with diagnostic, it's one sample per classroom. So, you know, a, a typical school might have 10 classrooms, 20 classrooms, something like that. It's much easier for them to send in 10 or 20 tubes than it is for them to send in 
200 or 400 tubes for every kid in the school, right? So, and it's cheaper, right? So for the same cost of doing one diagnostic test, you can test 20 kids in a classroom, right? Um, and so all of a sudden you're bringing down the burden of doing testing, you're bringing down the cost of doing testing, which means that you can actually conceivably test every kid every week. And so that's been something that we've um, have been really excited to offer here in Massachusetts, um, but also are working with um, Baltimore um, to provide testing to all of their public schools um, and, and now expanding outward from there. Um, and it's been really great to see, you know, we've had, you know, principals tell us like, oh man, this week was the first time we felt, you know, normal since the pandemic started because it just provides so much reassurance to be able to test every kid every week and know exactly um, who is, um, who has COVID or, or doesn't at that particular time. As a working mom myself, I want to personally thank you for everything you are doing. Yeah, yeah. I was I was really lucky that my kid has, has been in school and, and they were actually my daughter's school is one of the first schools that we tried out with this classroom testing method. So I'm really grateful for all the principals and educators out there who have like been doing everything they can to help return kids uh, to school safely. They're, they're the real heroes. <laughs> What do you think you consider to be like your greatest success at Kinko? What are you most proud of to date? And what are you looking forward to doing to have even greater impact in the future? I think, you know, what we're most proud of is, at Ginkgo is just the range of problems that we're able to work on um, with biology, right? So we've always been sort of nerds about the foundational technologies, right? Um, like, how do you make biology easier to engineer? But the reason why we were so focused on those foundational technologies is because we knew biology touches every part of our lives, right? Our health, our food, our environment, um, everything. And so the fact that we've actually been able to go and work on all these different application areas, each of which are worthy in their own right um, from a sustainability perspective or from a human health perspective, but do so on a common shared platform which is what enables continued investment in that platform is I think to me, like what I'm most proud of, right? And so, and that wouldn't have been possible without like the amazing folks um, who I've um, been able to work with here at Ginkgo. So, so yeah, that is probably where I'm most excited. <laughs> and looking forward, is there some big area that you just can't wait to tackle or that you're really excited to have an impact on in the future? Good question. You know, one of um, the sort of companies that we've spun out is called Join Bio, and they're working on the challenge of nitrogen fixation. Like, how do you replace uh, synthetic fertilizer with, you know, essentially biofertilizer, right? Um, using microbes to fix nitrogen instead. And, uh, you know, if they can make even a small dent in that problem, that would be huge from a sustainability standpoint. And so we're really excited about Join and the projects they're working on. Let's transition now to talking about some tips for founders. It is unfortunately still not the norm to be a woman founder in this space. And I would love to hear you reflect a little bit on what you perceive to be some of the challenges that you faced, how the ecosystem might move the needle collectively, and if you have any specific advice for women who are starting companies. 
Yeah, so I've been uh, really lucky in my experience um, at Ginkgo. You know, my uh, co-founders have all been tremendously like supportive and, and, you know, we've really operated as a team. That's why all five of us, you know, founded the company and are all still here at Ginkgo, you know, 13 years later, um, sort of hard to believe. Um, and so I think, you know, my advice um, for women who are thinking about starting companies is, is one, like, yeah, find a co-founding team if you can, who has your back, right? That's almost the most important thing. And so anytime I faced, you know, challenges um, or, or felt knocked down, you know, having, having a set of people um, who um, I could rely on um, for support was, was definitely super important for me. I would say the second thing is, for me personally, I find that rather than focusing on any, you know, perceived bias or discrimination I experience, what I prefer to do instead is like channel that to creating opportunities for like the women um, or, or folks of underrepresented genders or, or minority groups at Ginkgo. Um, and I won't say that we're perfect at it by any stretch, but, you know, basically channel, channel that negative energy into something positive, right? How do we create a leadership team that is more balanced, right? How do we create a team within Ginkgo that is more diverse, right? And, and so sort of channeling it towards productive ends and, you know, finding that talent that other people tend to overlook because of stupid things like sexism and racism, right? Um, uh, is been really rewarding to me um, because um, those people can be hugely um, um, valuable to building your team and building your company. And, you know, candidly, not everyone can appreciate um, what they bring to the table. And so if you can, I think you can turn that into almost a competitive advantage for you and your company. If you were to say, um, from your vantage point, looking at the ecosystem at large, like, is there some lever that we could push on or pull on or move that would change the, the, the gender ratio in biotech? You know, I'd love to say that there was something that we can magically do to snap our fingers to sort of fix things. I, I think that would probably be naive, honestly. But I think the more like success stories that we have out there, the more it like garners like folks who are interested in taking this path. And the more people who take that path, the higher the likelihood that we have the breakout successes that are what really help to redefine the stereotypes. Right? To me, it's just about like, you know, if, uh, if, if you're a female founder, you know, take that cold email from an aspiring, you know, student turned turn future founder, you know, speak at that speaking event, even though you don't have time, right? Um, go the extra mile to sort of help, you know, to pay it forward. And, and to me, that's like the most meaningful thing we can all do as a community to help redress the balance. <laughs> Maybe the next the next question segues into diversity at large in your company. I know you have a lot of thoughts on how to build a diverse team, and you do a lot at Ginkgo to ensure that you have a really diverse group of people working as part of your company. How do you think about diversity, and what are the ways in which you really make sure that you are attracting and supporting talent in your uh, community? So I think diversity at any company is always a work in progress, right? It's not something that you achieve or check off. It's, it's something that you continuously have to work towards. And, you know, I have to say my biggest regret about Ginkgo is that we didn't make diversity more of a central priority earlier um, in our existence. Like, I think we really started thinking seriously about diversity probably when we were like, you know, somewhere in the 30 to 50 people range. I think we should have done it like on day one, right? Because 
when you are two people, three people, five people, you know, a couple hires can suddenly rebalance um, the whole organization, right? And those people add more people and those people add more people. And so the earlier you can think about diversity efforts, which, you know, was not candidly embarrassed and embarrassingly, it wasn't on my radar when we first started Ginkgo. But I think we could have been even further along in our efforts than we are now had we thought about it even that much earlier. Um, and so that's probably like my biggest advice to folks is like, think about diversity on day one and turn it into a competitive advantage, right? Find that talent that other people undervalue and recruit them and make them feel valued and help them grow into themselves um, in your company. And that will just pay dividends like, you know, far into the future. <laughs> You spoke a bit about bootstrapping, and I was wondering for our audience out there who is really thinking about this transition from PhD postdoc right into launching their startup, do you have any very practical tips on like how to bootstrap and why that is an advantage when you are a really early stage company? Yeah, you know, when you're first starting out, you really don't know what you want to be when you grow up, right? Um, and so, and I think venture money can sometimes be tough because it has sort of a certain cloth to it and whatnot. You know, they expect you to know, to have your plan and sort of execute against it. But if you're not there yet, if you don't quite have your plan together, if you don't quite know how you're going to make money, if the underlying technology needs more investment, then I think bootstrapping can be an amazing way to sort of give yourself the time and the latitude to sort of figure things out. And so I think my biggest comments are, are one, like it's not that bootstrapping is inherently better or worse than taking venture money or anything like that. It's really about what phase of your company's life cycle are you in and what's the right type of funding for that phase. Um, and then two, you know, even with biotechnology startups, which people usually think, you know, require lots and lots of money. Like if you get creative, you can actually do a lot with, with very little at Ginkgo, you know, we built uh, with some sort of sweat equity and perseverance and patience, we built our first lab for probably around $150,000, which at the time people thought was completely impossible. They thought you needed millions of dollars to be able to start a biology lab. And so again, I think if you get, you know, creative and resourceful, you'd be surprised at one, how many people come out of the woodwork to help you in your endeavor and two, just how cheaply um, you can do it. Do you still sneaky love dumpster diving? You know, Tom is still, um, Tom and I, my co-founder, still loves to bid on pipettes on eBay. <laughs> so I think we still have pipettes here um, that are bought off of eBay. So <laughs> you might be single-handedly running up the prices on eBay for lab equipment <laughs> still to this day. <laughs> I love that. Reshma, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you with us. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Yeah, thank you, Jay. Thank you, Tony. It was great. Yeah, thanks, Rachel. If you haven't yet signed up for our Petri newsletter, go to our website, petri.bio, to stay connected.